sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. Today, The Way of Restoration, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you turn with me to the reading we had in our lesson? The second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. For our visiting friends and guests here this morning, we are pursuing a series of studies in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, entitled God's Call to Church Action. The theme throughout the epistle is just that. God's call to church action through the word of reconciliation undergirded by the work of reconciliation. And we're dealing with the epistle verse by verse. And in this first section, we have the theme of fellowship. We've dealt with the theme of the fellowship of consolation. Then Paul deals with the fellowship of vindication in which he states his case for the stand he has taken in the church at Corinth. He moves on to the explanation. And last week our theme was telling the truth. Telling the truth. And Paul opens his heart in this matter of truth in love. This morning, in this same context, he deals with what we call the fellowship of restoration, or if you prefer, the way of restoration. And I can't help feeling that this is one of the greatest themes that needs emphasizing in the Church of Jesus Christ today across our land. I've just come back from a conference in Bermuda where for the last week I've shared the ministry with the Reverend Dr. Richard Halverson of the Fourth Presbyterian Church of Washington, D.C. Our target was the International Christian Leadership Conference. We had delegates from all over the United States as well as Bermudians. And I think one of the highlights of the conference was an address he delivered on what he called fellowship. This matter of, of Christians and leaders and churches and groups throughout our country coming back into fellowship with one another, that we might demonstrate the true nature of the unity of the church. All the panic today to produce a world church with structural organization is because there's a frustration within to show the world that in point of fact we are united. We're to show the world that we're united. The scripture is not to make unity but to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One of the reasons why I believe we're not united is because there's not this forgivingness and reconciling spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. And I know no passage which deals with it more classically and comprehensively than the verses here before us this morning. So turn with me then to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. 
Let me remind you again that the verses before us are very, very closely linked to the paragraph immediately preceding it. Paul had just explained why he felt it necessary to cancel his visit to Corinth. The trouble in the church had given rise to a painful letter that he'd had to write. And he was persuaded that until the climate had changed at Corinth, that is to say the spiritual climate, his presence in that city and particularly that local assembly would only aggravate the situation. At the very heart of the distressing problem in the church was an unnamed offender. Older commentators identify the culprit with the perpetrator of incestuous marriage mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. More modern evangelical scholars maintain that this individual was some person who had personally insulted the apostle on his last visit and had to be disciplined on that account. For instance, no less an authority than Menzies says it is quite contrary to the moral position Paul takes up in such questions that he should have tolerated the presence of the incestuous person in the church under whatever pressure from his converts and that the person here in question is charged not with immoral but with rude and disagreeable conduct. End of quote. Such disagreement between scholars leaves the question open and it's not my purpose in this study to pronounce on this issue. More important than this is to understand what Paul has to say concerning the restoration of one who has now repented and is seeking mercy. The restoration in which you stand in need, my friend, and I stand in need when we sin against Almighty God. And the principles here outlined are so important that I want you to take very special note of the exposition this morning. Our first point is what I'm calling the occasion of restoration. The occasion of restoration. Verse 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but only in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Paul reminds his readers that the sin of this individual had not only caused him personal grief as the apostle and in fact the founder of this church under God, but that this sin had affected the whole church. As he says in another place, none of us liveth to himself. As living personalities in any given community, we affect other people. Indeed, we affect our homes. We affect the places in which we work. Preeminently, we affect the church. Let us never imagine that in our heart of hearts we can sin and get away with it. Whether we disguise it to our wives, our husbands, our children, or those who are near and dear to us, or in fact our church. Doesn't mean that it's hidden to God. And just as Achan in Old Testament times disobeyed and violated the commandment of the Lord and stole from the city of Jericho and committed the sin that God had forbidden and dug a hole and hid his treasure in the earth in his tent. It was known by God. 
when an army that had been victorious against Jericho collapsed against Ai. Why? Because of sin in the camp. We cannot live as isolationists in the true sense of that word. However, in spite of the havoc which this man had caused in the church, a tremendous change had taken place, and this is our point this morning. A change had taken place. There was evidence in the first place of penal compliance. There was evidence of penal compliance sufficient to such a man as this punishment which was inflicted of the many, says the apostle. We cannot read the gospels or the epistles without realizing that there are divine procedures and measures that have been laid down in the word of God beyond any dispute for the dealing with sin in the church as well as in the individual life. Failure to comply with such discipline only leads to chaos and death. Indeed, this explains the sorry mess we're in in Christendom today across our country and across the world. But here we have an instance where the church had acted on the instructions of the apostle as laid down in chapter 1 and also in chapter 5 of the first epistle. It appears that action had been taken by the church. That action, incidentally, had not been unanimous. But it had been carried by a majority vote. That's the meaning there. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment was inflicted by the most of you, as the literal translation is. Such discipline, moreover, was considered by the apostle as sufficient and adequate. Furthermore, the implication is that the man in question had accepted this censure. In other words, there was evidence of penal compliance. It might be added that until there is such evidence, discipline must not be considered as sufficient and restoration must of necessity be delayed. Pastors are faring very badly in this respect. Christian leaders likewise and churches in general. The great standards of morality for which the Bible insists, insists, I repeat, should be incumbent upon us all, had been brought low until now, today, it's the double standard. It's the new morality. But God's message has not changed. His methods have not changed in relation to this matter of disciplining and dealing with sin in the life of the church. And until there is this penal compliance, when there's flagrant violation of the laws of God, a church cannot be blessed. It cannot be blessed. It'll move on from defeat to defeat and to defeat. But where there is evidence of penal compliance, that's half the battle. But in addition to that, I want you to notice what is most important. What is most important here this morning? Those evidence of public repentance. Public repentance. Look at verse 7. So contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Later on in this epistle, Paul reminds us that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Chapter 7 and verse 10. We preach repentance to the unregenerate world, but oh, how we need the message of repentance to the church of Jesus Christ today. In those seven churches, 
In the book of the Revelation, five of them have the message from the risen Savior, repent, repent, and again repent. Peter in his epistle reminds us that judgment must begin at the house of God. And how true he is. Until there is evidence of this godly sorrow and repentance and restoration is not only premature, it's farcical. And I want to remind you that it was public repentance. Public repentance. Paul knew it. Titus had reported it. The church knew it. That the man who had offended had not only repented in his own heart, but had repented publicly. And everybody knew that he was swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Thank God for every evidence of genuine repentance. Let us remember that there is a difference between being sorry for sin and being sorry for being caught. There is a difference between confessing our wrongs and confessing the wrongs of others. And again, there is a difference between seeing our own faults and seeing the faults of our neighbors. True repentance makes us cry with David in the language of true penitence. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Matthew Henry says true repentance is never too late. But late repentance is seldom true. So we see that the occasion of restoration is the evidence of penal compliance and the evidence of public repentance. God make us ever willing to accept the loving hand of discipline and then to acknowledge the broken heart of repentance. The occasion of restoration. Compliance with God's holy law. Repentance in a spirit of true brokenness. But in the next place, I want you to observe what we shall call the order of restoration. The order of restoration. And in verses 7 and 8, we have some words that we need to wait on here this morning until they seep into our very souls. So that contrary wise ye ought rather to forgive him, to comfort him. And then Paul adds, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Here is a divine order for pastors as well as people within the circle of the local church. Given the evidence of penal compliance and public repentance, we must restore those who have stumbled and fallen into sin. Paul exhorts in another place, Galatians 6 and 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. The order of restoration is clearly outlined in the verses before us. Will you notice these three points? First, the church must extend forgiveness of Christ. The church must extend the forgiveness of Christ. Look at the imperative there. Ye ought to forgive him. Ye ought to forgive him. Lest Paul should appear to be asking of the Corinthians what he wouldn't do himself, he boldly adds, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also in the person of Christ. 
Titus had reported the action of the church in disciplining this individual and the consequent repentance that had followed. So Paul was satisfied that the time had now come for this man to be forgiven. And the spirit of the apostle moves me deeply here. For if we're to accept modern scholarship and evangelical scholarship at that, this sin was an affront on the apostle himself. He had been rudely and disgracefully handled by an individual in the church. And Paul had gone through deep anguish and grief because of it. And it had become such a scandal that the man had to be disciplined. But the first man to want to forgive him is Paul. I forgive, he says, in the person of Christ. And I want you to take that word, the person of Christ. It's an unusual word. Literally it means, I want to forgive this man in the face of Christ. That's the literal translation. And to me this speaks volumes. I want to forgive this man in the face of Christ. It's as if Paul had pierced the heavens and he was looking on the face of Jesus himself by faith. He says, as I look at the face of my Savior, I can't do anything else but forgive him. I can't do anything else but forgive him. The words of Calvary have broken into his soul. Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No wonder he could later write to the Ephesians, as we heard most gloriously interpreted by the choir this morning. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Paul was aware of the fact that unless this spirit of forgivingness was present in the church at Corinth, further blessing from heaven would be withheld. Beloved friends, this is the point. This is the very heart of the message to which I am arriving this morning. This spirit of forgivingness amongst us. I care not what church you come from. We speak for Calvary. You can speak for your own church. This forgiving spirit that brings back reconciliation and restoration to the church. D.L. Moody recalls one occasion visiting a town for a crusade with his good friend Mr. Sankey, who was his song leader and companion throughout his great missions. For a week it seemed as if they were beating the air. They just couldn't get through. The harder Moody preached, the more the words seemed to bounce back from the walls of the great auditorium. Sankey sensed it as well. At last one day Moody said that perhaps there was someone in the gathering and especially on his committee cultivating an unforgiving spirit. The chairman of the committee who was sitting next to the evangelist got right up, left the meeting in view of the entire congregation. The arrow had hit home to the chairman of the committee. He had had trouble with someone for about six months. And that very night he went down the street and he hunted out that man and he put it right. And he came back with tears pouring down his face, an eminent man in that city. And he confessed to Mr. Moody what the sin was and how he put it right. And he said, Mr. Moody, I want to thank you for coming to this city 
For quite apart from the great evangelistic crusade, you came to speak to my heart, and I put it right with God. That night, and you could read the record, the inquiry room, as it was called in those days, was thronged with inquirers. People pressing forward to get right with God. God alone knows what blessing we miss in our local churches and our personal lives because of a spirit of unforgivingness. We're swift to pass judgment, swift to pass judgment, but so slow to extend the forgiveness of Christ. Benjamin Franklin once said, doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenging makes you but even with him. Forgiving alone sets you above him. Christian, have you got a forgiving spirit? Have you a forgiving spirit? Has it ever occurred to you that the prayer you offered this morning in unison with me is meaningless to you until you do have a forgiving spirit? When Jesus taught that prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't comment on any other part of it but that particular aspect we're speaking of this morning. And he lifted it as it were out of the prayer and he amplified it and he said this, If you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. And I wonder how many unforgiven Christians there are in an audience like this. I mean unforgiven Christians. And why are you unforgiven? Because God will not forgive you in Christ. God will not forgive you in Christ until you forgive others their trespasses. The way of restoration. The church must extend the forgiveness of Christ. Secondly, notice the church must express the compassion of Christ. Look again at verse 7. Another imperative, ye ought to comfort him. Ye ought to comfort him. As we've seen already in these studies, the word comfort carries the thought of compassionate strength and encouragement. Whether this man had been delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the body, as is recorded in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, or had been disciplined in some other way, not specifically mentioned, doesn't really matter. But he needed comfort. He needed comfort. He needed comfort in the Holy Ghost. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians to minister this comfort and this encouragement to a broken man. Let us never forget that to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to be indwelt by the Holy Comforter. Jesus said, when I go away, I'm going to send you another Comforter, one of the same kind, that he may abide in you forever. And if I'm truly regenerate, if I'm born of God, if you are my friend, if you came to a place of true repentance before God owned your bankruptcy as a sinner and you accepted God's pardon in Christ and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you received the Holy Comforter. And the outliving of the indwelling Spirit is a ministry of comfort. A life that does not manifest compassion and comfort is a life in which the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched. 
And we heard it this morning, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Oh, grieve not the Holy Spirit of promise. The church must extend the forgiveness of Christ. The church must express the comfort and compassion of Christ. But in the third place, the church must evoke the assurance of Christ. And I like verse 8, I beseech you, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. That ye would confirm your love toward him. Paul climaxes this order of restoration with an impassioned appeal to the Corinthians to ratify their love toward this penitent brother. Some maintain that the word confirm suggests an official action in which a truly repentant brother is publicly reinstated. Tasker asserts that the translation of the word confirmed suggests that the apostle is urging the Corinthians to make their love a matter of certainty. Certainty. Nothing is more healing and reassuring than the knowledge that you're loved and you're wanted and you belong. It is one thing to say that you love a person, it's quite another to show it in a manner which conveys certainty and assurance. You know, you can look into a person's face and say, I forgive you. But you know very well he's saying under his breath, but I could punch you on the nose. <laughs> it's another thing to say it in such a spirit of Christ, with such a deep, deep compassion in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, that that man, that woman, that fellow, that girl knows is certain that you love him. You love her in Jesus. In this connection, I love the words of Brooker T. Washington, an American Negro educator who declared, I am determined to permit no man to narrow or degrade my soul by making me hate him. So we have seen what we mean by the order of restoration. Let us see to it as individuals as well as a church that were characterized by the forgiveness of Christ, by the compassion of Christ, by the assurance of Christ. This is the order of restoration. That the church should extend the forgiveness of Christ, should express the compassion of Christ, and evoke the assurance of Christ. But my biggest concern this morning is our last point, and here it is. One other aspect of our subject remains to be considered. I'm calling it, calling it the objective, the objective, the aim, the goal of restoration. Ye ought to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. With his characteristic thoroughness, Paul takes us one step further in this procedure of restoration and shows that the ultimate goal that he had in mind and we must have in mind and God has in mind is a threefold objective. And here it's outlined for us. Let me put it this way and you won't forget it. First of all, the offender must be salvaged. And I use that word deliberately for reasons you'll see in a moment. The offender must be salvaged. Forgive him, comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. 
As we've already noted, this man may well have been the person who was delivered unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. And Peter tells us in his epistle that our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Do you know what that word devour literally means? Swallow up. The devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may swallow up. This means that a man can be swallowed up. And the means he employs to effect this end might well be over much sorrow. For less than this some people have become apostate. Some have committed suicide. Others have gone mad. We must see to it, therefore, that such a state of affairs never develops. All discipline should be remedial and with a view to restoration. It is quite clear from his writings that Paul's whole motive in the exercise of discipline was never vengeance, but always correction. His aim was not to knock a man down, but to lift him up. William Barclay with whom I don't always concur in theology, but whose background knowledge, and especially treatment of Greek, is so fruitful and so suggestive, has a passage in his commentary on the second epistle to the Corinthians here, which is worth sharing with you. He says there is a sense in which sins are good qualities gone wrong. The man who has a fault may be overextending something which is really good in and of itself under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The man who can plan a successful burglary, for instance, he says, at least has initiative and organizing power. Pride is a kind of intensification of the independent spirit. Meanness is thrift gone to seed. It is in fact on record that men who were skillful at safe-breaking, safe-breaking, were the very men that the British government used for commanders during the war. Paul's aim in discipline, he adds, is not to eradicate such qualities as men may have, but rather to focus, harness, and channel them to higher purposes. The Christian today is not to render the sinner harmless by battering him into submission, but to make him a saint by inspiring him to goodness. See what I mean by salvaging? See what I mean by salvaging? And our supreme objective, number one, is to salvage the offender. The offender must be salvaged. There are qualities in him which Jesus Christ has already discerned, for he saved him. And as I've often said from this pulpit, God doesn't make duplicates. God always makes originals. And if God has taken the trouble to save you by the grace of his dear son, it is in order that he might express through you what he can't express through anyone else. For just as a diamond is unique in and of itself, it can never be copied in the final analysis. There is something that flashes from the facets of that diamond that can't flash from any other diamond. And if you happen to be the jewel in diamond, God wants you for what you are. And he wants to salvage you. And we must, we must acknowledge this. 
in our own individual lives and in the lives of the churches of our country. But in the second place, the assembly must be strengthened. Not only must the offender be salvaged, but the assembly must be strengthened. And Paul says in verse 9, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Paul reminds his readers that one of the objects and goals of his letter was to test their obedience. Apparently the church had been faithful in the painful exercise of discipline, but Paul is desirous now that they should be equally faithful in the pleasure of restoration. Severity and justice alone make a hard and cold church. Leniency and tolerance alone make a shallow and carnal church. But where God's goodness and severity are maintained in perfect balance, there is always a strengthening of the church in the qualities of spirituality, maturity, and unity. God save any church, God save any pastor from being shallow and sloppy and sentimental. But likewise, God save any church or pastor or group of men within the church from being so severe and cold and unrelenting and unremitting that the very spirit of the Savior is grieved and quenched. Oh, for that sense of balance, that poise of true spiritual temperance. For temperance is the great fruit of the Spirit. Control, balance, sobriety. But I think the greatest point of all is this one with which we conclude this morning. The offender must be salvaged. The assembly must be strengthened. But look at that next verse, verse 11, with which we concluded our reading. The accuser, the accuser, that is the devil, must be silenced. And Paul says something here which is one of the greatest floodlights on the work of Satan that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Verse 11 reads, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. If ever there was a person who had first-hand knowledge of Satan, it was the Apostle Paul. He had been buffeted by the messenger of Satan, we're told. In chapter 12 and verse 7, he had been hindered by him in his work at Thessalonica, we're told, in that first epistle of Thessalonica and Thessalonians in chapter 2.18. And he was forever wrestling not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with powers, with the rulers of the darkness of this world, with spiritual wickednesses in high places, he tells us in Ephesians 6. And he knew how the devil could turn good into evil and so harmfully affect both the church and the disciplined man. And so he says, let's watch it, let's watch it, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan succinctly describes the devices of the devil within the confines of this very context. Without going out of these verses at all, he just points out the following. He says, first of all, Satan lured this man into temptation and therefore into lust. Now he tells this man that there is no forgiveness. He was being submerged in sorrow. Paul says, restore the man, forgive him, love him, take him back. 
lest he be overwhelmed with grief. Take him back, lest Satan has a victory in the very good that you've done. Because Satan's technique is to take good and make it guilt. And while guilt is right and proper until a man truly repents, the devil can turn even guilt into gloom and utter despair. He had gained a victory by overcoming this man through lust. Now says Dr. Morgan, don't allow him to gain a second victory by overcoming this man through sorrow and over much sorrow at that. Then there are the devices of the devil within the church. The first was tolerance of evil. For if you read the first epistle, when we studied it here, we noted this, that the church was so carnal, so insensitive to holiness, so utterly divided amongst themselves, so taken up with mere gifts that they'd, forgiven the, they'd forgotten the giver, that this horrible sin, not even named amongst the Gentiles outside, was actually being tolerated in the church. When Paul points it out and deals with it, See what happens? The devil comes along and says, very well, very well. They've defeated me on that score. I'll defeat them on the very issue. I'll press severity and discipline to such a point that they'll forget to restore this man. Now the second device of the devil, says Dr. Morgan, is undue severity, hounding of a failing man until he's overcome with utter despair. That's the devil every time. These then are the devices of the devil and Paul was not ignorant of them, nor should we be. We must silence the accuser as we take our stand on the ground of his cross work. When Jesus died at Calvary's cross, he made an open show of Satan and principalities and powers. He laid the foundation for his utter and complete destruction. And he gave us the grounds on which we can claim victory day by day. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the promises of God before us, we can act on the word of James the Apostle who says, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And that word submit means present arms. Show God that you're not trusting in the flesh to overcome the enemy. That your armor is Jesus Christ, or as Chrysostom puts it, he is the totality of your armory. And in the power of this risen Jesus Christ who died to deal with Satan and rose again, ultimately to consign him to the bottomless pit. In the mighty name and merits of Jesus Christ, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And that's not rhetoric, that's truth. And you can know that in your individual life. You can note in the life of the church. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray. So often we pray without watching. And Paul tells us that if we don't take care, Satan should take an, an advantage of us. And I want you to look at that word. In the Greek it means Satan, Satan will outmaneuver us. Satan will outwit us. Literally, Satan will cheat us. Stratagem must be met with strategy. And thank God in Jesus Christ, we have more than an answer to the attacks of the enemy. That's the climax of that mighty chapter in Romans where Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And again, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thought that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's our privilege and our joy today to commission two new missionaries to the land of India. Before very long, we'll be having letters back telling us of the opposition of Satan, of that kind of experience that the missionary has on the field that we're not very familiar with in this country. I'm the son of a missionary and I've lived for 17 years on the mission field and I've sensed the opposition of principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and I've seen the maneuvering of Satan, the outwitting of missionary strategy by this great arch enemy and I'm telling you we need here as a church to pledge ourselves in a new ministry of prayer not only for ourselves but our missionaries not only for us corporately but for us as individuals individuals that in the very good we do we may not be outmaneuvered by Satan to his advantage so we see this morning what we mean by the fellowship of restoration here is an aspect of the ministry that we must share with others. In the very nature of the case, we are all capable of failing, every one of us. And in this respect, we can be defeated before we begin. But as long as there is genuine repentance, thank God there is always the occasion, the order, and the objective of restoration. To know this is to become comforted and strengthened for action in a world that is satanically controlled. How wonderful to know that wise and subtle as the devil is, we can outwit him, we can outmaneuver him. How? By the power of the indwelling Son of God who was manifested, says John, to disintegrate and destroy the works of the devil. Let us take courage then as we respond to God's call to action. As we go from this church this morning into a new week, it's God calling us to action. And there isn't a man, woman, or child in this place this morning who hasn't at some point failed, failed this last week. But thank God there is a way of restoration. There is a way of restoration. And as long as there's that kind of repentance of which we've been speaking of, God can forgive and we must forgive. Lest Satan take advantage of us. And with this release, go out to preach the only message that can bring men and women to the foot of the cross and into life and joy in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we bow in thy presence to thank thee for thy truth. We thank thee for its sheer simplicity. We thank Thee for its sweetness. We thank Thee this morning that for everyone in this place there is plenteous mercy and abundant pardon. Should there be people bowed in Thy presence right now who are being swallowed up over much sorrow, Oh, may this be a message that brings them right through to the place of release and rest in Jesus Christ. Make this the beginning of days.
for many a dear soul that leaving this place they will know the joy and the life and the power of a restored life. We thank thee that though often the potter finds the vessel marred in his hand, he can remake it again. Grant this, Lord, to be a blessing to all our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.